Welcome to the Modern Nonprofit Fundraiser Podcast, where we help nonprofits reimagine generosity and put the joy back in fundraising. Hear from leading nonprofit fundraisers and marketers as they reveal strategies for strengthening donor relationships to propel your nonprofit forward. Hey, everybody, this is Gabe. Welcome to the Virtuous um, Modern Nonprofit Fundraiser Podcast. Today, I'm so excited to have Brady Josephson with us. Brady's a, a longtime friend. He's the VP of Innovation and Optimization and Next After. And so, Brady, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, I'd love uh, for you to tell our listeners a little bit about kind of how you got into fundraising and and uh, I want to hear about next after, but kind of tell us a little bit about how you got into the space. Sure. Well, it's kind of a, a long story, so I'll give you the, the short version. But um, my my grandfather was a was a pastor. My dad is a reverend, so I kind of like grew up in the in the church. And there's a lot of things I don't fully understand about you know the, the church faith. But one of the things that really stuck with me was kind of this idea of caring for the poor, the lost, the sick, the broken. That ever since I was little, that's been something that you know, I've been uh, passionate about and has stuck with me has been core to kind of who I am. And so uh, I, I kind of pursued that I was originally going to be elementary education, kind of in a inner city in Chicago when I went to school thinking that's the way I can make an impact. And then a combination of things, I took a business class, which blew my mind because it was like strategy and competition and, you know, these other things in terms of how I'm wired. And then um, the Southeast tsunami of uh, 2004 hit. And I remember slinking into the back of our kind of chapel and watching these NGOs and nonprofits work in this midst of the devastation. And it was just, you know, clear as day, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So like the next day I changed my major to be, be a business major with a focus on nonprofit management and kind of sent me down this, this other path that's kind of meandered, but that's kind of the, the original, uh, you know, Genesis story of me becoming a, a nonprofit person. And then along that path, someone said, if you can raise money, you'll never not have a job. And I thought, that sounded good. So <laughs> I focused more on fundraising in, in my career in grad school. That's great. And so I know like uh, fundraising and the, and the science of fundraising has been a big deal for you, you know, even before you got to next after just the idea of optimization and digital fundraising. Um, but now that you're at, at next after that's, that's really ramped up. So tell us a little bit about next after and, and what you're doing there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so next after is two things. Uh, we're a fundraising research lab and then we're a consultancy and really those two things kind of work hand in hand. So we'll do a lot of research, both kind of forensic research where we'll go out and kind of create data by becoming mystery donors and give to 150 nonprofits recurring gifts and see what happens or 152 Canadian charities and see what happens and kind of experience what a donor would experience and collect data and insights that way. And then we'll do applied research where we'll actually run a lot of primarily A-B experimentation on landing pages and emails and things like that to actually see how donors respond. Because if you ask donors like why they do the things they do, they really have no idea. And often they'll end up kind of lying to you by accident. <laughs> so our, our vision and mission is to grow generosity. And we think to do that, we need to really understand donors. And to do that, we have to be really research focused and experimental based because surveys and things like that just just don't cut it. So that's how those two things work together. And then we kind of use all that research and we package it up and give it away for free to kind of everyone. So courses and blogs and things like that. And then we use all that info with our clients to kind of deliver more results in terms of getting more uh, donors, emails and dollars. 
It's great. Um, and tell me a little bit too about kind of specifically your role there. I know you said you guys are, are two things, but how do you spend most of your days? Yeah, uh, it's kind of evolving. You know, we're, we're not that big. We have about 12, 15 people. Um, but I'm, I'm probably a little bit more on the research lab side of things. So uh, helping lead some of those kind of forensic in the market experiments and then working with our um, evangel- evangelism officer and senior director of research to kind of create those courses or those content pieces that can provide training. Um, that's increasingly more of where I'm spending my time. And uh, I don't really deal much with, with clients. I do some on the kind of business development side just because I like speaking and pretending to be smart. So uh, sometimes <laughs> that works well. <laughs> that's great. Um, well, tell me a little bit. I, I want to hear more about some of these specific studies and findings. I know um, some of our listeners would benefit. So what are your, you know, the top couple of studies or experiments you guys have, have worked on recently? What are you really excited about? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's really top of mind because we just finished two uh, big ones. The first one that I'm personally super excited about was the Canadian uh, fundraising scorecard study that we did here in Canada, where I'm from and where I was born and raised with 152 organizations. So in 2014, uh, next after we did um, the online fundraising scorecard with 151 organizations in the U.S., and is really looking at email signup, email fundraising, and then the donation experience from these organizations to try to find what's really going on and what are the gaps and opportunities. So we basically borrowed that same methodology and just applied it to here in Canada, where we really have a shortage of Canadian-specific research and content. We often have to borrow from the U.S., um, which is fine, and it's, you know, it's close, but uh, we're Canadians. We're different. So it was neat to kind of do a pretty robust, comprehensive study, very specific to the Canadian market. Um, so that's kind of personally exciting and um, that's been great. And then the other one that we just finished is uh, all about recurring giving, which is something that is very near and dear <laughs> to my heart and is something that is still not nearly as widespread and used and focused on, especially in the US as it should be. So for that one, we included 115 different organizations and we actually made three different donations. We made a one-time donation, a recurring donation, and then a one-time donation then we turned into a recurring donation or converted into a recurring donor. So we had these three different kind of donors and then we tracked all the communication given to each donor for three months to kind of see how they were all treated differently. And then we even canceled a credit card and reported one as lost to see how organizations responded when credit cards went, went uh, missing and kind of captured that experience. And so we tried to tie all that up into this one kind of huge report uh, with some key findings. And that is, is really interesting, partly just because of what, what we found, but I think it's more just, uh, again, not, not nearly enough people or research is being done on recurring giving and it's paramount to, to fundraising success. Yeah. So you say it's paramount to fundraising success. We're really excited about recurring, uh, giving as well and understanding who the best candidates for recurring giving are. But um, from you guys' perspective, why, why is that such a big deal? Why is it a big enough deal to do this study on? Why is it a big emphasis for you guys? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the short answer is that uh, recurring donors are worth much, much more over their lifetime than one-time donors. Some people say four times, some people say 5.4 times, some people say 10 times. Um, regardless of kind of your, your data source, it's at least, generally, it's at least four times more than a one-time donor over their lifetime. So I think that the key there is lifetime. It's something that, you know, we chatted briefly about before and something you guys have in Virtuous in the product to, to help track, but it's something that 
you know, I, I went to grad school and studied it and I was well into my career before I really understood the value and how important lifetime value was. So I, I think there's just um, a lack of either knowledge or maybe ability to track lifetime value, which is at the root of a lot of this. But once you understand the importance of lifetime value and if you can start seeing <laughs> or tracking it, then it's so obvious how important recurring giving is because it is so much more valuable over for your organization compared yeah. to, to one time over a donor's lifetime. So that's like the, the short answer. Uh, but th there's some, you know, ulterior benefits like predictable revenue, which is huge, especially for smaller organizations. Uh, you know, when you don't know and you're just kind of waiting for a $50,000 check to, to make it the next three months to have some predictable revenues, huge. Um, the longer a donor sticks around, the more likely they are to be become a legacy giver, bequest giver, kind of at the end of their, their relationship or the end of their time. And then you should be able to spend more of your time um, on either like, you know, acquisition or some other stuff because it shouldn't be as costly um, running a recurring giving program as some of these other things. So there's, there's extra benefits beyond just the, the main benefit of it being super valuable to your bottom line. Yeah, uh, it's great stuff. I um, just finished a blog on the same topic and, and one of the big things I talked about was recurring revenue. You know as well as I do that in the tech space, like predictable revenue is the buzzword. Everybody wants predictable revenue. And I think it's even more important in nonprofit fundraising in that if you if your cause is like a sort of a multi-generational thing, like let's say you're, you're focused on education in a poor African country, that's not a, a three-year fix, that's a, it's a <laughs> generational fix. Well, if, you, if your strategy is, is a long strategy, but your fundraising model only gives you line of sight to three months out like you're always like you can't plant like you can't effectively accomplish what you need to accomplish in the world without a predictable revenue model and recurring is the fastest route to that so um just even for that one fact i think it's such a huge deal for orgs i'm glad you brought it up <clears throat> um so as you guys think about recurring in general uh what, how do, how do people adjust their CTAs and messaging uh, to start changing people's minds and drive more recurring giving? So both for, for new donors, getting them at the sort of the point of making a decision to donate, how do you drive them from being one time to uh, recurring? But then, like you said, somebody gives one gift, now you want to cultivate and bring them back around to being a recurring giving. How do we think about the right sort of CTAs and messaging to get them to take that action? Uh, that's a good question. You know, it's funny, the more that we do really, really in-depth research, both again, kind of the mystery donor stuff and applied, it's, it's funny how um, we still miss a lot of the basics. <laughs> so especially kind of making 150 donations around recurring, we realize the first key point about CTAs and messaging is to have a CTA and messaging about recurring giving. Oh, you know, there was 10% of organizations in the study that just did not accept recurring donations at all. And the vast majority of them did not have any sort of way to, to find recurring giving easily from the homepage, whether it's through their navigation or something like that. Uh, and then only nine out of the 115 had something like a value proposition for why someone should become a recurring, donate, uh, recurring donor. Most of it was just kind of like, you know, a toggle button, choose recurring or monthly as opposed to one time, but no real value proper reason why. And so the biggest takeaway, I think, for the whole study is have some CTA messaging. And we see that all the time. Same thing on donation pages. Um, so many donation pages lack copy at all. 
And so this is, this is the fundamental marketing problem is that we assume that the donor knows what we know, or it's this curse of knowledge. And so we create, you know, user experiences and don donation pages based on our own understanding. And we fill in the gaps because we know all this, right? We know stats in the Sudan or whatever it is. But then when you step outside and look at it from the donor's perspective, we actually often give them very, very little to know why they should give, why they should give today and how their donation will make a difference. And so it's no different for recurring. So by far, that's the biggest thing. Beyond that, like we actually don't have a lot of um, research or experimentation to say this particular messaging works better than this one or this price point, especially around recurring. But the general principle is more copy than less. And you got to share more about why a donation makes a difference than less. That that's pretty, pretty universal at this point based on our research. Yeah. I wish more of these orgs would almost take a, a play out of the book of, of child sponsorship orgs um, and figure out, look, the, the way that some of these orgs are the biggest orgs in the world is that they say, well, $35 a month will provide food and education for this child. It's very tangible. It's very specific and it's very tied to that recurring gift ask. I think if more organizations could boil down their value proposition to be just massively clear um, and tactical about that recurring gift ask, you'd really see the needle move. Yeah, totally. And I think recurring giving traditionally has been a little bit more for like, you know, if you really love us, then you'll set up this recurring donation. Yeah. Whereas increasingly now with uh, like rise in subscription purchasing and the interest in like recurring giving payments, um, I saw a study where now direct to recurring acquisition is outpacing recurring conversion. So people are signing up first time more frequently to become a recurring donor than the one time to recurring pathway. Yep. And so this, this method of giving is, is rising. And so it, it, you're right. The, that strategy is more apt now than ever because people are interested in doing it uh, maybe more so than they have been in the past. And they got to understand why <laughs> that's the big thing. If you don't give them why, then it doesn't matter. You know how cool your form is and what color your button is. If you don't give them a reason why the rest does not matter. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a company Zawara that handles a lot of subscriptions for big tech companies um, makes this case that we're, we've now moved to a subscription based economy between software as a service or media as a service or everything as a service. And so people are already sort of framed up that way when they get to your donation page. So why not, attach value to it that makes sense for them. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, one of the, the neatest uh, studies that we've done or experiments coming out of that study is we saw people used a pop-up kind of like right at the point of completing a one-time donation that kind of said, Hey, before you make this donation, have you thought about making this recurring kind of here's why. And in our experiment, we defaulted them down to 60% of what their gift was or a minimum of $15. Yeah. And, and what we saw is that helped increase recurring giving. I think it was about 64%. And then wow. we, rolled it out again across their whole site, all their donation pages, and it increased recurring giving about 24%. And it didn't uh, negatively impact one-time donors at all. And uh -huh. so I think, again, this is the, the, the brilliant insight there, I think, is twofold. One, like once someone starts in motion, now you can kind of communicate other things with them. But if you lead with something like, do you want to give us a credit card for four years? It's, it sounds like a big ask. But if you yeah. can just kind of nudge them, like, wouldn't you like to make a difference like every month? Yeah. yeah. You, know, you get them in motion. Then you can present this kind of other opportunity. And a lot of people say, oh, yeah, that does sound great. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, so I think that's, that's kind of a, an interesting you know, insight there is I think a lot more people are, are willing, but they need to be presented with it in a, in a clear way. Yeah, that's great. I know uh, you guys have talked a lot about 
sort of climbing up the donor funnel instead of sort of falling down it, which means you got to get people to start saying yes. And, and yeah. you, you know, you don't just start with, Hey, will you marry me? Will you marry me? You, know, you <laughs> actually, you, you know, you sort of get people's buy-in and get them saying yes, which, which from a psychology point of view and every other way, it makes perfect sense. So I like that sort of, you know, getting them in the form and then, and then saying, Hey, here's this other opportunity. And they're already, like you say, in motion. So it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. Um, you guys do a lot of experimentation around email. Uh, email has become one of the most important mechanisms for fundraising. We're seeing that all over the place. So if I'm a nonprofit marketer, how should I be thinking about email in 2018? Like, do you have any sort of tips or tricks uh, that you can share that helps move the ball in terms of email fundraising? Sure. Yeah. Um, so just one, like, I just need to reiterate how important email is for online fundraising it is the most important. Um, there's, a, there's not a lot of things that are kind of correlated, but pretty much the, the size and quality of your email list dictates how much money you can raise online in 2018. There's a perception that, you know, it's like, oh, email's passe and it's all about Instagram or Snapchat or something like that. And it's just not true that the value of email for our clients is just rising, continues to rise. So email's crucial. And if you're kind of trying to game the system and jump ahead to what's next, I think it's a terrible mistake. Um, and then in terms of like hacks and tricks, um, the first thing before I say anything else is you got to test and experiment for yourself. Uh, that's, that's obviously the big thing that we preach, you know, the gospel of optimization. And just because it worked for our clients or worked for all of our clients doesn't necessarily mean it'll work for you. It's an insight. It should work, but it's still something that needs to be put to the test. So that big caveat aside, which isn't super useful, <laughs> I think there's uh, two things. One is uh, try, try stripping your email from pretty much all of its design. Um, at the very least, reduce prominence of logos. Instead of having big buttons, maybe use like hyperlinks. Uh, get away from maybe a big hero image, particularly if it doesn't work with the copy or reinforce the rest of the email. Uh, that, that's almost a universal that we've seen, especially when it comes to appeals or fundraising emails is the more simple on the design side and more personal it feels, the more likely someone is to give. And that's, again, a kind of a counterintuitive thing because the emails you get from, you know, Zappos or whatever you're shopping are designed and you read all these blogs about how cool emails can look and there's just no data or evidence that supports it that I've seen. Uh, if someone can show me how a super pretty email outperforms a plain one, I'm happy to, to be more open, but I haven't seen it and our research says the opposite. Yeah. And then along the same lines, sending an email from a person and then written like it's for a person uh, or just that more personal in tone in terms of how you start the email. Uh, all that's really important. Like people are sick of being marketed to, right? They want to be kind of communicated with. And the more that we send emails from organization and you can help give hope, which means nothing. And then we start like preaching, you know, Jenny was a six-year-old child in need and like who starts conversations that way? Like you don't talk to humans like that. So why do we do that in email? You know, it should come from a person. It should introduce yourself. You should talk like a conversation. And we've got some pretty good research to back that up in terms of that working for emails. So those are two kind of, I don't know if they're quite hacks, but um, we've seen that work. Less design, more personal seems to win pretty often. Yeah. Yeah. The personal side is something obviously we preach all the time. That's, that's really, we think the, the game changer is, is how do you move from mass, you know, um, 
communication, direct mail, traditional marketing to really creating a personal relationship. And a lot of that is simple things like, like tone in your copy and trust them as a person and, and does it feel relational? And so it's huge. Yeah. I think some people get confused on the personalization. Like there is personalization that you can do like with a product like yours. That's like, yeah. Oh, they've given so much and you know, here's what they visited or whatever. Let's be really targeted that that's one level of personalization. But the whole other level that we're talking that any organization can do is just talking more like a human, like a person, you know, you don't need a fancy, you know, system or data collection to do that. Uh, and that that's really what donors want. Yeah. And, and talking to the donor, I mean, the institutional communication just talks all about you and it's yeah, always totally. a cocktail party example. Like you don't <laughs> walk up to somebody on a, at a cocktail party and just start talking about yourself in the third person. That's yeah. just not a thing. And so um, why would you do that in email? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's great. So um, let me finish with this one because I think it'll be really helpful. Uh, we've been thinking a lot about uh, just giving and online giving and we've talked a little bit about email. You mentioned even people having a giving form on their website that there's just a giving form, nothing else. You talked a little bit about a value prop on a giving form around recurring giving. What are the other aspects? Like once you, once you get somebody to go from an email to a form on the website, what, what are the aspects of that landing page that really drive engagement? Um, what are you looking to be present on that page? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. Um, so I'll back up one step and kind of what we found in looking at all of our donation page exam, uh, experiments is that there's really three different types of donation pages. There's like your general donation page, which needs to be kind of specifically vague <laughs> to mm -hmm. kind of, you know, let people know why their donation makes a difference, but you, you don't know where they're coming from. So you're trying to catch them all. Then there's a campaign donation page, which is what you should be using from an email or from a direct mail appeal or from a Facebook ad, which is, uh, more specific and the key there is context and continuity and that's that's something that I think a lot of organizations either don't do because they don't know how important it is or they don't have the technology or they don't have the expertise or you know creating a whole nother form costs them $400 or something insane nowadays um, but if you send an email that's really specific and personal and you know your $35 will do this and then you point them to this donation or landing page that says nothing about what you just talked about it doesn't have $35 as a donation anchor or, you know, doesn't keep that conversation going, then it's like this kind of whiplash effect that the donor has and they just peace out. You know, they go, oh, I was interested and now I'm not even sure what you're talking about anymore, right? Or to use your cocktail example, it's like you have a good conversation going and then you just walk away <laughs> or something, you know, just leave the conversation and, and we do that unintentionally all the time. And so that, that context and continuity of you know where they're coming from and what you said to send them there. So yeah. keep that going. So, yeah. you know, adjust your value prop and messaging, adjust your gift arrays just to line up. It's not that hard. Uh, and it makes a big difference to the donor and conversion rate. So that's a big mistake that we see uh, as it relates to emails pointing to donation pages is this kind of whiplash effect. Yeah. And then, uh, then the, the, like I said before, the, the kind of value prop and having some messaging, even if you have a, you know, an email that talks about it, you got to reiterate it. So again, that, that donor mountain that you referenced, you got to get that yes at each stage. Even if they said yes to the email doesn't mean that the rest of the stages are just, you know, mail it in. You got to keep getting them nodding saying, yes, I still want to do this. Yes, this is still a good decision. So you got to have some more kind of reaffirming uh, copy along the way. And then the forms, you know, having made, I don't know, 
hundreds of donations over the last three months to hundreds of organizations, there are some really crappy forms that are frustrating to use and uh, it's getting better, but um, you know, the form just eliminating unnecessary things, trying to lay them out uh, horizontally as opposed to vertically to limit kind of the, the visual or the eye line um, seems easier notifying them if they've kind of made a mistake before they actually click submit, you know, some things like that can actually make quite a big difference in lowering the friction uh, involved in making a donation. Yeah. And taking out the friction is huge. I mean, just simple, easy to use forms are really a big deal, but eliminating extra things. Sometimes there's 12 things you want to know about a donor that they really don't care to give you. And it just creates extra friction and there's, totally. there's no need to do it. Um, so I, I think that's huge. I mean, so much of what you said is just, we see those similar mistakes over and over again. Um, and it's funny in 2018, you should be able to create a new landing page with a different donation page around a campaign in, in five minutes. It shouldn't be a call yeah. to your IT staff. It shouldn't be a $400 change. You should just be able to, to knock it out and not enough people do that. And it does create, now I'll go one step further to even say, and the email, like the three emails they get after they give thanking them should also be related to that campaign or project. Sure. I mean, in, in this day and age, that sort of consistency and coherent communication that's all personalized and about the original thing you started the conversation with, that should continue on. Just not enough organizations understand the power of that. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the thing that I say all the time and talk about, because that's a question that comes up all the time, right? It's like, well, you know, we can't make that many pages or, you know, our, just, just the tool that we use, this is how the form is. And I have a lot of empathy having worked sure. organizations, tons of empathy. So set that aside. It's a choice. Like organizations are choosing to use crappy tools that hold them back. And it, so many of them kind of cast it off. Like it's not a choice. And maybe it's the only choice they can make. Maybe in the grand scheme of things, that's what they have to do. That's fine, but it's still a choice. And I think that's something that uh, everyone, like we all, the tools we use, the the decisions we make, like we have to own them and say it's a choice. Because the minute you start thinking like, oh, well, uh, I think you're done. So I think that's a really key mindset thing is yeah. you got a crappy tool, then you can change it. Um, and if you don't, well, then it's your own fault. <laughs> and it's kind of hard to hear, especially when, you know, budgets are thin. But it's, I think it's a key thing that we have to keep keep preaching because it's a mindset shift more than anything. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Um, okay. Well, this has been great. I, we usually finish with a lightning round, just a couple of questions to, and things that are a little more personal and kind of quick response. Is that okay? Sure. Let's do it. All right. So, uh, in the last year or so favorite book or podcast that's had an impact on you? Um, oh, impact. I can do favorite easily. Uh, I've been re reading the King Killer Chronicles. It's kind of like, a fantasy huge novel and it's been great for me to kind of escape uh from work that's been great and then uh, podcasts i'm a big big podcast guy like tim ferris's podcast has been impactful just kind of the the life hacks and tricks yeah uh, malcolm gladwell's revisionist history i don't know about impacting me but i think it's brilliant in how he blends kind of really nerdy concepts in storytelling and podcast form is really really sharp and uh, it's one of my favorite podcasts that, that i listen to so there's yeah. a couple that's great. That Gladwell, I mean, there's been multiple times you shouldn't cry when listening to Malcolm Gladwell. He's like <laughs> sort of the least <laughs> cryable guy on the planet, I think. But the, his, his podcast on race, and then he did one on like the perfect country and Western song. And I'm like, yeah, 
there's sections in both of those sets of podcasts where I'm like crying like a baby in my car. What's wrong yep. with me? I'm crying. I remember that, that country when I was, I was driving with my wife up to Nelson in the mountains and we were crying. Yeah, it was great. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, okay. So, um, you have uh, a demanding job and, um, you have a growing family. And so in the midst of all that, how do you uh, find balance? How do you stay sane? <laughs> I don't know if I'm the, the best person to give balance tips. Uh, <laughs> but I think there's a few things that I, that I try uh, that maybe you could try to. I remember um, reading Mitch Joel who wrote Six Pixels of Separation amongst a bunch of other things. And one of the things he said was he never used an alarm. In the which I don't believe, <laughs> but the, the concept is like listen to your body, and I, I do think that's important. So, mm. you know, if I'm if I just wake up at four, then I'll just go to work at four and then I'll stop early that day. If I'm up at eight and it's like, man, I'm exhausted, I'll cancel meetings and go back to bed or something like that. I think, I think our body's way smarter than we give it credit. And yeah. if you can listen to it, that's one way to kind of, you know, keep in rhythm. Uh, it sounds a little wishy-washy, but I think that's something that has been working. Um, and then another thing is uh, a friend of mine who's an entrepreneur, a design company called Lemon Lee. Uh, he, he coined this thing called eight for the day. And every day you write down eight things you want to do that day. Um, during the week, it's six things that are tied to your kind of your job or your work and two things that are tied to kind of your personal life. And then on the weekend, it flips kind of six things you want to do with your personal life and two things maybe related to work. And uh, I think that concept is, is really good. The number is sometimes too much, sometimes too little, but just taking that time at the beginning of every day to think about what I want to do both personally and professionally yeah. uh, is, is huge. It really, really helps. Yeah, I like that concept. I mean, there's similar things like kind of the, your big rocks and putting those in first. Yeah, totally. And, but the, the concept is great. And by the way, I, I like six pixels, but what's his name? Mitch Joel. Is that his name? Mitch Joel. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he has kids because like, <laughs> when you have a, when you have a four year old that, that wants to watch the popples at five thirty in the morning, <laughs> it doesn't matter whether you have an alarm or not. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm learning that real quick myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, Brady, it's been a joy. It's always good chatting with you and talking. It's some really, really valuable stuff today that I'm, I know our listeners will get a lot out of. So uh, thank you so much. Uh, tell everybody a little bit more where they can find out about Next After. Sure. Yeah, you can find all of our kind of research and content at nextafter.com. We've got some courses that you can find, but that's courses.nextafter.com. And then me, uh, my email is Brady at nextafter.com. So I'd love to hear from you. And uh, thanks for having me, Gabe. Thanks, Brady. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Modern Nonprofit Fundraiser. The podcast is brought to you by Virtuous, the CRM and marketing automation software helping charities raise more money and create more good. Be sure to rate and subscribe. For more resources, head to virtuouscrm.com. <laughs>